All right, this is the eighth lesson on Presbyterianism, and I would like to begin, I think we're going to do 12, so we'll finish through February, and then we'll have another teacher and another lesson, but I want to begin by reading Matthew chapter 18. I recently preached a sermon on these verses. Um, let me see. Matthew 16, wrong, wrong chapter. I knew that was wrong when I said it, but... Uh, verse 13, uh, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets... He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then also Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, uh, verse 18, and and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for another uh, chance to study this subject for a few more weeks. We ask you that you would give us as Presbyterians a, a real sense of what the church is and what she's supposed to be. And, uh, and yes, give us a little guidance as well uh, from history and uh, even from Orthodox Presbyterian uh, elders like Daryl Hart and his book. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I said, I said that I was using this book, but I realized this morning uh, that I am doing now in, in Lesson 8 a class on Chapter 2, so we haven't made it very far. However, um, I mean, if you read the introduction in the first chapter, it's in, intensely stimulating, so it gave me more than enough material, and it made me think of other books that I've read, and uh, but but we've laid that, that groundwork of what Presbyterianism is and kind of the high church continuum, continuum high church, low church. Um, and that's the idea that Daryl continues to explore throughout the book, that people are dissatisfied with low church and they're going to the high church. But why aren't they going to Presbyterian churches? And, and next week we'll actually look at that, que- or excuse me, in two weeks, uh, we'll look at that question more specifically. Um, But uh, I really want to start making progress in the book. We will not finish it. I have a plan of which chapters I want to cover until the end of February. Uh, But it's a book that you you may want to get and read the whole thing yourself. It's actually a collection of essays. So I noticed at one point, I've started reading ahead, and I noticed at one point he was saying exactly something he had said in an earlier chapter. But it wasn't made to be a book. (laughs) But the essays were just all put together. Uh, All right, so... The, co- the concept of today, which I had hoped to cover last time, but we didn't, and now I'm just going to devote an entire class to this one subject, 
Uh, and, I, and I somewhat wonder, actually, this was supposed to be half a lesson, uh, although I only got half a lesson done last time. But I somewhat wonder whether this is the first time I actually have a little bit of anxiety about whether I have enough in one class. Uh, but if you guys get talking at all, which is fine and welcome, we will, we will fill this time up uh, for sure. So, uh, but this one's pretty simple, and Daryl doesn't have a lot to say, and I don't have a lot to say, but there's a basic framework here on the subject of church growth. And recently I preached a sermon on that from Matthew chapter 16. I have 18 here in my notes, and I, if I had a pencil, I would cross that out. But anyways, it's not Matthew 18, it's Matthew 16. Matthew 18 is church discipline. Matthew uh, 16 is church growth. You remember the phrasing that Jesus uses upon which I base my sermon, I will build my church. And so Jesus is making it clear that the church is something that is intended to grow uh, into uh, something beyond its initial beginnings of just him and 12 disciples and maybe a few other gatherings. And that's what he's been doing throughout the centuries. He's been building his church upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.20. So that's our focus, church growth, which is uh, obviously uh, a thought that in our pragmatic age, um, and one of the things I have to admit is that the older I get, I won't say I get less principled, but I do become more pragmatic, but I'm not nearly as pragmatic as the age in which we live, but 20th century, 21st century, the church has become obsessed with uh, the, the, the idea of growth. It's led to a whole movement. Can anyone tell me what that movement is called? It started in the, in the seeker-sensitive. Seeker started in the 70s, I think. Maybe it was later than that, the 80s. But really, that model is still the, the prevailing model. Uh, and, and even, I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. When you hear about, oh, this OP church has four or 500 members, I, I immediately say, they have contemporary music, don't they? And the answer is always yes. And they, they, got, they got a real hip conversational preacher, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they do. I mean, just absolute slam dunk guaranteed. Oh, the man is gifted and faithful? You sing hymns? 60. Yep, 60 people. So I, this is just, I mean, you can't argue with the results and the numbers, by the way, when I said that gifted and faithful, I was thinking of John Shortman in Pensacola. Uh, so, I mean, they're lucky to have 60 in the morning. Uh, and he's twice the minister uh, of any man I've ever known. So that's, ju that's just a sign of the times in which we live. Now, I will say, uh, I think I can honestly say this, that there is nothing in this world easier than filling the church with people. It's incredibly easy. Uh, all you have to do to get the goats to come is, what am I going to say? Entertain them. Just entertain them. And actually, again, two weeks from now, I'm working ahead in the book, and I have this in my mind because I've been reading it, but Daryl talks about the fact, and I'm previewing two lessons from now, but the fact that we think of corporate gatherings. People come together outside of church. Now that church isn't the prevailing model, people come together, they gather for entertainment, football games, concerts, or whatever. And so that idea has been transported into the church. And the idea is, you know, what do people expect when they come together and they gather? They expect entertainment. If you offer that, there's a certain paradigm, you will have a very full church. Uh, also as a part of that paradigm, again, two weeks from now we'll talk about this, uh, 
is the fact that the primary focus on Sunday is not worship, the worship of God's people, but evangelism. The idea that Sunday is the ultimate opportunity of evangelism, uh, as opposed to the ultimate opportunity for God's people to meet with their God and God to meet with his people. Uh, so the church has become obsessed with this. It, 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 I mean, even a church in town, a so-called reformed, I won't call them reformed, but a so-called reformed church in town at one point brought in a consulting firm to help them pick their new pastor. I mean, so the corporate model is another way of speaking of this, and we're, we'll talk about that today. This has totally overtaken the church, uh, and, and it has come into the reformed church as well. Uh, so the question is, if you want the church to grow against those odds, <laughs> where the biblical, the gifted, the faithful men are lucky uh, to, to get 100, you almost will never see that, but, but the entertainment model will just pack it out. If you, if you want the, to see the church grow, what are you to do? Well, Daryl uh, talks about two sides of the debate. And, uh, and Daryl actually says they're both right and they're both wrong. He talks about the evangelistically minded side of the debate, which is obsessed with growth and sees the fulfillment of the Great Commission as constantly seeking out new people. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unending evangelistic, uh, evangelistic campaign that the church is engaged in at all times. And that's always, always the, uh, the emphasis. In fact, um, another church in town, I'll try not to name names, uh, especially since this is being recorded, but another church in town, at one point we had a, a family from this other church, and uh, he said to me, this church is just known for constant evangelism in the preaching. And, and this pastor would even say in the preaching, this is an account that I heard, so I can't validate that this is true, but he said, you know, the preaching isn't about you. It's about the person here who might be unsaved and who needs to be saved. So uh, that's not a caricature. I think that's a fair representation of, of, much, of much of what passes uh, for worship and preaching today. That's the emphasis. Uh, what you also see in these churches also, which they admit, apparently Bill Hybels came out and admitted this, that the turnover is enormous. And so you might actually be filling <laughs> the church, but it's a revolving door. Uh, and you, 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 the front door is open, but the, so is the back door. I mean, it's wide open and people are walking through it constantly. But that's one side, the evangelistically minded Christian. And there's even a name for this. It's the evangelical wing of Christianity. Uh, and this is one area where I might disagree with uh, my beloved Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he, he called himself an evangelical, but I call myself reformed. And I do see a difference here. Uh, so Daryl says the evangelistically minded typically think in measurable categories. And they believe sticklers for doctrine or polity erect impediments to, to the spread of the gospel. So the, the famous slogan is doctrine divides doctrine divides so to be a stickler for polity to be a stickler for worship to be a stickler for uh christian doctrine is actually to stand in the way of the church's great mission and that is to bring people in 
The other side, uh, Daryl, it's funny, he would call them this because he would much more naturally fall uh, on this side of things. He calls them theological nitpickers. <laughs> on, on the other side, he says, uh, they judge many church growth schemes to be at best crass and at worst a betrayal of God's sovereignty in salvation. Now, there is a category, another, another word for this, which we would not subscribe to, but it's called hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism is such a strong view of God's sovereignty, and, and frankly, a distorted one, that they would actually say that evangelism is never appropriate, but that, uh, but that God simply will save people in his own sovereignty in his own way. So, uh, essentially, in that side of things, Really, both sides are reacting to the other, and they're both overreacting to the other. And what Daryl says is surprising for me is that both sides have a point. Uh, that the reality is that, let's just be honest here, the OPC is not doing a good job of converting people. That's something that we have to we have to be honest about. It's not now, I've seen churches take a more evangelistic side and fail utterly. So, um, and I remember a, a pastor even saying that in evangelism, nothing works. So just try something. This is one of my practical theology professors. He was actually a PCA uh, pastor, but uh, evangelism is one of the more frustrating and at times seemingly futile efforts, especially in a pagan age such as ours. But ideally, we would like to see, and I'm going to talk about this later, we would like to see people, who, not just our children, but people who are converted coming into the church. Uh, so in fairness, this is a, an identifiable weakness that the other side has pointed out. On the other side, the theological nitpickers all, also have a point. I almost uh, don't even need to say that because... Uh, I think we already all agree with that. Basically, uh, what Daryl is saying is that the church should be growing. Uh, this, is, this is something Mark Dever talks about in uh, the practices of a healthy church, or the nine marks of a healthy church, and one of them is growth. Now, he, he says there's two metrics of growth. One of that is spiritual maturity, and that is something that we all need to be after uh, in a very diligent way. Uh, but another sign of the life and the health of the church is that she's growing numerically. So, uh, the church should be growing. That should at least be a stated goal of the church. And we shouldn't put unnecessary impediments in the way. Daryl says that the question then becomes whether it is possible to have it both ways. To have well-populated and firmly faithful churches. And, uh, and that is the question. That's the big question that I have myself. Uh, is, is it possible, quite frankly? I mean, that's the goal. But is it possible to have a firmly faithful church, uh, but also a well-populated church? You know, the, the hymn we sing, we long to see your churches full. That is the genuine desire of Presbyterians, but we want to see the church full of sheep, not full of goats. We want to herd sheep, and we don't want to, to compromise our principles in order to have people come into the church. But the problem in the modern setting is that too often it's one at the expense of the other, 
And that's why you have these two sides and neither can seem to find the middle ground. The, the evangelistically minded pursue evangelism at the expense of ecclesiology. That means a high view of the church. And the reverse is also true. The theological nitpickers pursue theological purity and ecclesial purity at the expense of evangelism. Daryl Hart acknowledges that while faithfulness is the most important metric, so if we're creating a spectrum or scale, we would place faithfulness first. He says numbers are also important. I'll, I'll quote my favorite pastor again, John Shortman. He says, it's not about the numbers, but it's about the numbers. In other words, when we ask someone, how's the church doing? We're really saying, how many people are coming out on Sunday? And how's the budget doing? Uh, you know, those are the sorts of things. And, you know, whoever said, boy, you know, we went from 85 to 60. Praise God. I mean, that might be a reason to praise God. But do we really talk like that? There is such a concept of uh, addition by subtraction. But, you know, we're, we're going to say we went from 80 to 120, praise God. Oh, praise God, brother. That's wonderful to hear. Uh, you know, that's the conversation you're, you're going to hear. So it's not about the numbers, but it's about the numbers. Now, this is undoubtedly a snare. If you become obsessed with this, then it will, it will destroy the ministry of the church. But there is a place for us theological nitpickers to say, you know what? Numbers are important, and we would like to see the church packed out with people longing to hear the preaching and longing to be with other Christians. That, that is what we want. And so in reality, who can deny this? Uh, the, the pragmatic concern. And the pragmatic concern is important even to God. But here's the important point. And here is where the path of faithfulness is uh, really the difficult way of walking and often the fruitless way of walking for, for a long, long season of your life. And really, you don't even know the fruit until you get to heaven. You remember Jesus said uh, in Matthew 25, they said, Lord, when did we visit you in prison? When did we feed you? When did we give you a water, uh, a glass of water to drink? We, we don't see the fruit very often this side of heaven, but there is fruit that will be revealed on the last day, even if we can't see it now and even if we never thought it, it happened. But the Bible outlines the method of growth. The Bible tells us to expect growth, and it tells us, more importantly, I think, how that growth is supposed to happen. And this is not something, again, this is a historical study. It's not a biblical study, and Daryl Hart is a historian. This is not something that our forefathers in Presbyterianism never thought of. It isn't as though it never occurred to them that this was an important thing to consider. Uh, these were men who lived through days of revival, the first and second great awakening. They're heirs of the Reformation, one of the great revivals in the church. They've seen the church grow mightily. They've also seen the church diminish. And they, they, they've had a few things to say about it, which have come down to us. Now, we can reject that. The modern sensibility is a rejection of the past always, it would seem. Or we could say, you know, what, what, what was the old model? What were the old ways? And I was surprised uh, in, in Daryl outlining this, though I shouldn't have been, that this really is the model of, of church growth in the OPC. Daryl says, God has ordained certain techniques or forms for the church's growth. And so he offers here a suggested program for church growth, the old ways, the old paths. And it involves three things. Church planting, first of all. 
That's the primary, the primary thing. Uh, he outlines this on page 46 of the book. And there's a paragraph right in the middle, which I just found very, uh, very stimulating. I'll just read that paragraph. There's basically three pegs to this. He says, once upon a time, confessional Protestants, such as Presbyterians and Lutherans, planted church in a remarkably calm way. Several families would move away from a community with an existing congregation to one in which none existed. Now, this could happen in the same town, and it often does. But let's just say we wanted to plant a church in Monticello. Now, you wouldn't necessarily have to move there, but you would have to commit. Let's say we took one elder and then four other core families. So you had five core. We'd have to be much bigger to do this. But we took five core families, and, and, or, or we created five uh, families as the core families of a new work. And we said, that's going to be the work. Now, this begins before there's a pastor, okay? Uh, so it's a mission work. That's what we call it in the OPC. Uh, and and, and uh, there's ways to have that, uh, that pulpit filled. I won't get into that now. But you basically start what is called a mission work. To go on with the, uh, the, the paragraph, once this group of faith, of like faith and practice, grew to five families. Now I'm saying you would probably want to start with five families. But once it grew to five families, it would send word back to the Office of Home Missions, which we have in the OPC. The secretary of which would look for a pastor to shepherd the denomination's emigrants. The rest was history. The, dom- the denomination would continue to support the mission work until it grew to a size that was self-sustaining. And so if you ever ask, what does home missions mean? I used to wonder that myself. We give to home missions? That's what this means. There are a lot of works like this in the OPC. They're smaller, new mission works. And occasionally you have churches on life support that have been in the status for like 10 years. Fort Lauderdale's been that way. They've never quite grown enough to be a self-sustaining church, but Home Missions continues to support them. That's what this is. Because if you're just, let's say, six families, how are you going to call a pastor? You don't have enough funds yet. The presbytery and the denomination has to support them. And that's what they do. They send sizable funds to support the new works. In fact, I, you know, I've said the Presbytery now has a million dollars. I don't even quite understand how it got that large. What do you think they're going to do with that money? They're, now that we have a regional home missionary who oversees all of this and goes to different towns and meets with groups and looks at prospects, um, he's going to get to work and see to it that new works are organized and, and, and just shower them with funds, basically. Uh, so that you know, when there's a sizable enough group, they're going to have the money to call a pastor and then, and then uh, hit the ground running. The denomination would continue to support the mission work until it grew to a size that was self-sustaining. All right, that's what I was saying. Some of the new growth... All right, so this is peg two. Peg one is you, you start a work with a, group, a core group of, of, of families from an old church. And let's say we grew to... 250 people. And, you know, I believe that's possible. I'm growing cynical as the years go on. (laughs) It it does seem impossible uh, to have, to try to be faithful and actually see people uh, stick with the church and new families being added all the time. See, that's the other problem. You're constantly fighting attrition. Uh, And so how can, how, how can you build a church? It just seems impossible. Uh, But, but nothing is impossible with God. And so I still believe this is possible. Uh, and that one day we might see this. If we grew big enough that we couldn't all fit in that building, I wouldn't want to go to two services. I don't think that's an ideal situation. I'd say, you know, we need to start thinking about planting a church. 
and we would say, who, who wants to, who wants to uh, join the fray? And, you know, we have the opposite problem of other ages. We have an overabundance of candidates. Uh, we have too many men seeking the ministry and not enough calls. <laughs> so there would be no trouble finding someone who could oversee that as the pastor. But that's peg one. You have a group saying, we will go. Now, the other reason this model works, I have more to say about this than I I realized I would. The other reason this model is a great model is because what happens if the mission fails? You just go back to the mother church. It's pretty much a a sure-proof plan, as much as it could possibly be. It's a low-risk option. Uh, so, it, it, you know, now the only person who's really going to suffer in that situation is the pastor. And that's, that's a serious consideration. But usually they'll get enough funds for five years. If in five years they can't get off the ground, it, it may be time to move on. In God's providence, it, it, did, it didn't work out. But those people aren't going to be left without a shepherd. They can go back to the mother church. So that's a great, a great argument in favor of this model. Peg two, some new growth came from grafting believers from other traditions onto the vine of a particular confessional tradition. Let's just be honest. Most of the growth in the OPC is, is that. It is people, it isn't p- even people who grew up in the OPC, heirs of the OPC. It's people who are coming in from other tradition. And then he says, uh, some came, I guess there's four pegs, excuse me. The third would be the children who grew up in this new congregation and established families of their own. And so if this, let's say this church lasts, uh, let's say, 15 years, uh, and, and by that time, the teenagers or the, the, a 10-year-old man who was a boy, 15 years in, might have a family of his own from, from the inception of the church to 15 years in. Okay, uh, and then number four, of course, some came from new converts to Christianity. There is a big push. If you want to look for where the push is for evangelism in the OPC, uh, and at times I think it it becomes overly pragmatic, but where the biggest push is for evangelism in the OPC is for the church planting pastors. He says this older model of church growth and planting was inherently organic and covenantal. It ran along lines of familiarity. The core group had grown up in a particular communion. It was also zealous about retaining the covenant children. You see, in that, in that model, you're, you're, you, if you lose the children, you lose. And so the, the, the zeal to retain the children is, is off the charge. Uh, the church followed those members who had been reared in her bosom, and the success of a new plant depended on another generation of believers remaining in the fold to support the new church. So it won't work in this model if your children grow up and go uh, to the mega church with the rock concert and the hip preacher. It's not going to work. Uh, you really want to see generational evangelism. I, I just made that word up. I don't know if that's the right way to speak of it. But you want to see the church built upon generations. That's the old model. And I go to church where my dad went and my granddad went and so on. Not just because, hey, I'm from this family, that's what we do. But ideally, it's, it's a solid church. And why would you go somewhere else? I mean, that's the model. That's what you want. So that's the first thing, church planting. That's the model of church planting. Uh, one of the things I'll say along these lines, if you, if you get around and you visit other OP churches, uh, which whenever we travel, we do. We try to always visit an OP church when we're traveling. We just did so in North Carolina. Um, 
last August and went to the OP church there. And I was super encouraged um, by the church. It just seemed to be doing great. But it was a younger mission work, and it was full of new families, of young families. That's what you notice in these works, because that's the model. Uh, The second method, this is where it gets very conventional in terms of what we've been considering, baptism. This is why I read Matthew uh, 28 earlier. When Jesus tells us how to make disciples, he told us to do two things. He says, baptizing them and teaching them. So baptizing, Daryl calls this a technique for church growth unrivaled by modern methods. It's cheap, simple, and doesn't require strategic thinking. It's a ready mechanism for enlarging the visible church. And so uh, he says... One of the ways, uh, I'll say this with a smile on my face, but it's also true. Uh, One of the ways to fulfill the Great Commission, therefore, is to have more babies and see that they're baptized. They call this Dutch evangelism. And if you're a church planner in the OPC, it's it's mandatory that you have at least seven children. (laughs) That's a joke, but it's a good way to make sure you have at least one pew that's full. Uh, So... I'm falling behind by that standard, but I'm also not a church planter. So, that's the model. That's great. Like I said, generational evangelism. I just made that up, but I might I might stick with that one. I like that. The more I say it, was that write a book? Yeah. So. One of the things that Daryl says about evangelism, or excuse me, baptism is an evangelistic method in this covenantal structure, unlike so much of the, I cannot believe we only have 10 minutes. Um, I will finish this class, though, uh, this, this subject. Uh, so I did, we're not going to say, well, we'll finish this next time. But yeah, unlike the, the, the cheap and the, the cheesy of the, of the megachurch model, he says baptism is substantial. Uh, he says that it, this is a Puritan view, this is a reformer's view. Uh, it doesn't begin the Christian life, it encompasses the whole of it. The phrase which, uh, I don't know where it began, Luther used it, so it must have began before him even, but of improving your baptism. But, uh, which means that you're constantly looking back to that. Uh, and actually the sermon will be somewhat about this coming up. Uh, but throughout the Christian life. And it's part of the Great Commission. Who could deny the importance of baptism when it's part of how Jesus tells us to make disciples? Also the preaching, second part of the Great Commission. Teaching them all that I have commanded you, Jesus says. That's how we make disciples. That's the Bible's method for growth. Uh, So I I want to move on. I could say more on that, but we've said plenty on the subjects of preaching. In fact, we had a whole class on it. But this model, to use the language of Wendell Berry, this is what I'll finish with. And actually, that clock on the wall is a little bit ahead, so we're still okay. But this model, I talked about, did I say the corporate model? I think I did. When you get the consulting firm, literally. You get, the two reasons you get the consulting firm is, one, to hire the new pastor. Um, and if anyone wants to know what church that was, I'll tell you privately. I don't want to say it publicly. But uh, the, second, the second reason you would do that is to say, our church is failing Uh, Will you come in and tell us, identify weaknesses, and and give us areas for growth? And that consulting firm by no means needs to be Christian. That's what we would call the corporate model. Uh, There are churches. I mean, I went to 10th Presbyterian Church, which is a great church in many ways in Philadelphia. But they have an executive pastor, literally a CEO of the church. Now, when the church is that big, 
you have to have a chief, chief executive officer. In fairness to them, it's absolutely necessary. Uh, but, uh, and, and you know what? They've planted several churches. So, I mean, there's a, they've got a lot going for them. They're not just trying to get as big as humanly possible. But, man, I, a, a CEO of the church, I just don't know. We're talking about a man who never preaches. He just runs the church. Um, okay, maybe he preached once a year. He was a great guy, too, uh, at least when I was there. I don't know who he is now. So nothing against him, nothing against that church. Uh, but this is something you, you commonly see, the executive pastor, the CEO. Is that what we want? Or we might see the, the pastor alternatively. Could anyone guess? I just mentioned Wendell Berry, so it, it ought to be obvious for anyone who's familiar with him. Pastor as... Pastor is farmer. Pastor is a farmer. The agrarian model. So you have the industrial model and you have the agrarian model. The industrial model is the prevailing church growth model. But Daryl is saying, perhaps we ought to look at, at things more like Wendell Berry does. And he offers this quote. This is Wendell Berry. I conceive a strip miner to be a model exploiter. And as a model nurturer, so he's, he's contra- contrasting the nurturer and the exploiter. As a model nurturer, I take the old-fashioned idea or ideal of the farmer. The exploiter is a specialist, an expert. The nurturer is not. The standard of the exploiter is efficiency. The standard of the nurturer is care. The exploiter's goal is money, profit. The nurturer's goal is health. His land's health, his own, his families, his communities, his countries. Whereas the exploiter asks a piece of land only how much and how quickly it can be made to produce, the nurturer asks a question that is much more complex in difficulty. What is its carrying capacity? The exploiter wishes to earn as much as possible by as little work as possible. Again, efficiency. The, nurturers, uh, it, the nurturer expects certainly to have a decent living from his work, but his characteristic wish is to work as well as possible. The competence of the exploiter is in organization. That of the nurturer is in order. Human order, that is, that accommodates itself to both uh, to the other order and to mystery. The exploiter typically serves an institution or organization. The nurturer serves land, household, community, place. The exploiter thinks in terms of numbers, quantities, hard facts. The nurturer in terms of character, condition, quality, kind. End quote. Now, Daryl suggests, or maybe uh, he's, he was quoting someone else who suggests, it's very edifying to read that quote and just substitute uh, the, uh, the word farmer for pastor. And uh, his, his point is that, well, this is, I'll just read him. Instead of looking for ways, he says, to attract outsiders, the pastor knows that his primary responsibility is to feed his own flock and to ensure their growth and grace. And so this is an important reminder in the whole paradigm of church growth that uh, the pastor is not just trying to be, uh, he's not asking how much can I possibly, there's 200,000 people in Tallahassee, how many people if I do X, Y, and Z can I expect to come into the church? But rather as a nurturer of the land, he comes in and says, what, it, what is the land uh, as it stands and how, how should I best care for it? in a way that honors it. So he, he's a nurturer. He cares. He seeks the health of the people. Again, the goal is not efficiency. The goal is health, the health of the congregation. And so I think this speaks more 
uh, to the pastor uh, in, in an established church like this, and uh, where we still admittedly have a concern for growth. But, but I think more importantly, even than growth, is health. I think that's a great word. And this is, uh, this is a helpful way to look at the ministry. I wa- Let me see if there was one other quote I wanted to read. A pastor whose orientation is different from a Walmart manager looks on the needs of his flock, no matter how large, sees those needs from the perspective of spiritual and physical health, whether the flock agrees or not, and looks for growth that is qualitative and lasting. Uh, So that brings us uh, to that second idea. You have growth that's just pure hard facts. More people are in the pews, more money is being given. But the second metric is the quality of the people, the quality of the church. Remember one of the things that I've said over and over again, I don't remember where I first read this, but it stuck with me all along. Be sure that the church you're inviting people to is a church worth attending. Do not invite people into a chaotic, sinful mess. Get your household in order, and then maybe it will be attractive to the outsiders. No, you won't be as big as the megachurch with the industrial model, but you will begin to see growth. A church that is attractive, organically, covenantally, and so forth. Now, one, one last thing uh, to say is uh, about the doctrine of election in all of this. How that factors into church growth. We do not want our churches any fuller than God would have them. We are not seeking to grow uh, with pure numerical growth. We are looking to add to our flock those who are genuinely saved. Now, if someone is genuinely saved, that is someone we want in the church, whatever else might be true of them. There might be a hard road of discipleship, but that is someone that we want in our church. But Daryl says, only God knows how full or how big our churches should be. In the end, the idea of reaching the elect rather than growing the church should be a tremendous comfort to believers, especially to the officers of churches whose responsibility it is to see that the church's ministry remains faithful. Now, that idea of election doesn't mean we don't fall into hyper-Calvinism and say, well, then it doesn't matter. God will just bring people. But what it does mean is that it emboldens us to have the courage to employ means that the world calls foolishness and that the world admittedly despises. I mean... We had a guy call this church. He called me. We talked on the phone for a bit. He said, I'll be there Sunday. They didn't last 10 minutes. They got up and walked out of the church. This was about two months ago. And I, and I, you know, I was actually pretty hurt. But you know, I smile at it now. I'm like, how foolish we must have seemed that he just walked out. Uh, but, but okay, you know, people are going to come in and they might even walk out. They don't even last 10 minutes in the service. But if we believe that the means that God uses to convert sinners are the very means that we are using, let the world call them foolish. Let people walk out of the church. We do believe our conviction is that the church will grow in just the way that God would have it. So that's that's the class on church growth. We did finish it. And we will look next week at the subject of the spirituality of the church, which is chapter three. And then, uh, Lord willing, I hope actually to cover three chapters in one on the following class. Uh, so, and then I think we might have one or two more after that. So, any closing thoughts from the class? David. Is the Willow Creek movement a part of the church growth movement? Yes. Yes, Willow Creek is definitely. John, I know this is probably a 
five minute answers. Go ahead. Um, what is the church's duty, though? I mean, most of us weren't raised in this church. Mm -hmm. We all got here from other churches. That's right. Um, so, what is the pastor in session's duty to examine who's coming in and why in their last church and things like this? So, the question was what is the pastor and the elders' duty to examine people coming in, their motives? Um, and their, their background and so forth, I think that is paramount. Now, I've rebuked another pastor in town for taking about 20 or 30 of our members and never once calling me until he got a problem family. I said, isn't that funny that you're calling me now? Uh, so, but I, look, I've sent someone back. We got a family during the pandemic. They said, we're here for this reason, but when you know, the pandemic calms down, we're going to be back at our church. I said, that's not legitimate. You have to go back. You should not be here. Um, so... Look, if you love your church, that's where you should be worshiping. Uh, you got to have those conversations right off the bat, in my opinion. I've become more forthright about them. Look, why are you here? Did you leave your church on good terms? Have you spoken to the leadership? Um, you know, and like I said, in one case, I said, that's, that's no good. you got, you got to go back. Um, if you love those saints and you don't agree with how they're handling something, you got to just bear with them. But if, if, if that has led you to reject them for whatever reason... Uh, and you've had conversations with them about that, then maybe it is time, you know, to, to come to another church. Uh, but, you know, you gotta, you got to examine, examine their motivations. Most pastors are just like, wow, 20 new people. The Lord is blessing us. Well, for one thing, you don't know if they just harmed a church in leaving. And maybe you should, as a faithful pastor, tell them to go back. Do you have the courage to do that? The second thing you don't know is, how much damage are they going to do to us? I mean, the first thing you think when a new family comes is, this is great. Uh, you know, these, these emails that go out from the OPC, uh, from our presbytery, where the pastors are beseeching, each church uh, makes prayer requests. And I read through them, the smaller churches are always saying that the Lord would send new families. That's always the prayer, the Lord would send new families. But sometimes you wish the Lord would keep, would, would keep some new families from the church because, like I said, the people are leaving usually are leaving with, with some problems. Sometimes it's the church that had the problem. And you, you're a refuge for them. You're a safe haven. I think that's legitimate. I think there are legitimate reasons to leave a church, doctrinal reasons, sinful reasons. Uh, and we want to be a, a refuge for such people. We welcome such people. But when they're the problem, maybe, maybe, that's, not, maybe that's not what you want. In fact, it isn't. So does that answer your question, Matt? All right, we should I stop. You did in one minute. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, we we're good. We're good. I'm gonna press stop here.